Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Mem Gimel, page 43. So I want to continue the discussion about the, I would say, methodology of arriving at halachic decisions of, you know, when we've got these Tanaitic disputes and so on, which continues at the top of Amad Aleph, which even I began yesterday, the very first line from Amad Aleph, but the thing that makes it more complicated, I think, is that in this, you know, at this point, we end up with um, an example that becomes, you know, could be totally a, a sidebar in the discussion of, you know, we're, we're talking about the principles about halacha. Does the halacha really always follow the stam mishnah, you know, if it's not followed by a machloket? And then we've got a whole like, but wait a minute, we've got an example, and this is what I'm going to talk about. We're going to see it in a moment an example that we could get really bogged down in. So I'm going to try hard not to. If we have a Mishnah in Kalim, Masachet Kalim, we're not going to see that. It's not, it doesn't have a Bavli on it, but it's in a, in a Tarot, right? There's a Mishnah that talks about a comb for combing flax, right? To prepare it for spinning. And the teeth of the comb have been removed. Um, and there's only two teeth left to meot, and therefore that whole utensil, that whole um, tool, is considered something that will become impure if it would come in contact with impurity. However, vachat Torah, if it only has one tooth remaining of this comb, meaning it doesn't really work anymore as a comb, it's just this kind of tool that has a spike on it, right? Then it's no longer, it doesn't have the status of the of the clee. It doesn't have the status of being this kind of tool anymore. And therefore, even if it were to come in contact with ritual impurity, it would remain pure. You might now understand why I say this could be a whole you know, um, not red herring. What's the word? It's a distraction, right? I mean, we could, we could delve into this case at great length. And in Kalim, that's where the conversation is really taking place. And then the Gemara goes on here to make the point, again, still citing that if there's if you have any of these teeth that were taken out on their own, meaning so that you have the tooth itself, right? That it's you've removed one of the teeth or each by itself, and then you could use it, right? You could use it as a hook, you could use it as a I don't know, a toothpick. Again, I, I'm making up what your purpose might be. But because they have this kind of functionality, then they are considered kalim, vessels, utensils, whatever, tools. And they can again become, or they still can become impure as opposed to the broken comb that won't work as a comb. So that was a comb for flax. Now we've got a discussion of a comb for wool, right, where if you've got every other one of the teeth is removed so that you don't have two in a row, then it's not going to work because the combing of wool needs to, apparently needs to be a little bit more intensive than the combing of If you have three that are left in one place, then it would still be functional and indeed it can be rendered impure. But then if one of those teeth was in the external part of the frame itself of the comb, then it would still be, you. it would not be a functioning tool and therefore 
pure if it came in contact with impurity. So if they took, if you took out two of these teeth and then you made them into like um, um, like prongs, right? Then then that could again, it's got a, it's it's a different tool. So the content of that Mishnah, and so Rav Nachum asked this question. He says, "One second, this halacha, the halacha is not in accord with that Mishnah, that Mishnah in Kalim." And then, and this is the kicker, Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish both say this Mishnah is not an authoritative Mishnah, so you can't rely on it, on it for halacha. But the comment here is that the Mishnah is not authoritative, meaning when Rabbi Yudan Asi put together the Mishnah, presumably all of them were, in his estimation, authoritative. So then the fact that Chazal, that the Amorayim, later Tanayim, no, I guess there aren't later Tanayim, I take that back. The Amorayim come and they say, we don't pass in this way, then it's not a it's not halachic. Um, and then the Gemara asks, why? Why Taba Amarev Huda Barmanoach, Mishmed Rav Idi Bored Rav Ika, Mishum Dakashi Rachel Sefa, the Katari shall Semer, she flew she never had me been time, Tahor, Ha, Nishtarubo Stein, Makomachad Tame. So the question is, why is it that this mission is not considered authoritative? And the the claim here is that because the beginning of the mission contradicts the end of the mission because of the nature of these combs, right? If two are in one place or three in one place, um, you know, would it be impure, not impure? And then the claim is that you know, three could be impure, but if there's two, then it could not be impure. The Gemara says, Oh my gosh, Dilmaha Bhagavata Habibraita. So the Gemara says, Well, we're talking about internal teeth or the outer teeth. And again, we could get really bogged down in the example, right? At the end of the day, it goes on to say that, you know, that the handling of these combs is different. And therefore, we could say that it's it's not a problem, right? Meaning, not a problem to say that the halach it, it's not is not internally contradictory, right? But once you say it's not internally contradictory, then you still have to answer. This mission is not considered um, authoritative, and at the end of this section of the Gemara, it says El Mishum de Mesayma by Davkadi Davkane Zo Rabbi Shimon. So the conclusion is that the mission is not considered authoritative, not because of the mission itself, but because um, when they kind of delve into the Mishnah, they conclude that this is a position of Rabbi Shimon. And that means the fact that it's not attributed, right, means that you would say, well, this is the Stam Mishnah. It's the universally accepted Mishnah. But it, but it's not. It seems to be that at the end of the day, they conclude it's a dat yachid, it's a minority, one single person opinion, and that's why it's not authoritative. On the other hand, that's nowhere to be found in the mission itself because it's unattributed. So it takes the work of the Amorayim to figure out what's the Psaq going to be, and also um, what's the Psaq going to be, and then likewise, um, the fact that it's going to be considered un- not authoritative. To know what to do, fine, the Amorite will tell us. The rejection of the Mishnah as authoritative does not remove the Mishnah from the Mishnah. So everyone knows I love these types of passages of the Gemara where the Gemara is very self-aware and sort of explains how does Mishnah, how does Gemara actually work. Um, we've seen this a couple of times specifically in Yavamos, sort of Rabbi Yochanan in particular. Here it's Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish together 
like ability to sort of just strike down a Mishnah and say like, yeah, this Mishnah doesn't actually count. So uh, I, you know, we've learned enough Gemara together already in Dafyomi. Um, I'm just finding it surprising. It's come up in Yuvamos a couple of times. Um, and I don't recall that happening in the other Masakta. So I'll just sort of leave it there with that. I, do you remember it that way as well, Anne? Um, I know that it's come up. I don't know if I feel confident enough to make a a, a statement about Yavamot. Well, I know I'm saying it's specific with the Rabbi Yochanan piece. That's all. I, I oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I think that's... Yes, it's yes. come up before another Masakto, but the specific notion that Rabbi Yochanan somehow, who again is post-Rabbi Huda Nasi, but one of his later students, has the ability to say, this is not an authoritative Mishnah we've seen a few times here and have not seen that in other Masakta. That, that's all I'm going to thematically sort of mention here. Um, uh, so I just want to talk about two quick things here on the DAF. Uh, the next section that comes up starts with Shlach Rabbi Chiyavar so Rechia Bar Abin basically sends a message from Eretz Yisrael about the halacha in our Mishnah, that one may do erosin, right, this sort of quasi-engagement period with a woman, but not marry her within these three months of her previous marriage. Um, and this is practically what people do. And then what essentially ensues from here is a series of how did different rabbis actually enact this halacha of having to wait the three months? So now they give Rabbi Elazar's opinion, you know, that he would say in the name of Rabbi Hanina, right? So he said, just has to be the majority of a first month, a majority of a third month, and the totality of the middle month. So it's actually not a full sort of 90 days or three months. Amemar Srela raised Biyom Tishim, right? Amemar was uh, careful that it had to be that he would allow Averson on the 90th day. Amrli Ravashi Amemar, so Ravashi said to Amemar, Baha Rabbi Shmuel to Amri Chavayar, didn't Rav and Shmuel both say, Tzrichalam Tim Shloshim Chagashim? You have to wait a three full months. And you can't include in those three months the day of the actual death and the day of the actual betrothal, the actual Yerusin. Hachulinyan mineket itmar, right? Um, and this was stated, stated regarding to a, a nursing woman, de Rav Shmuel de Amar Travayo, because wrote, both Rav and Shmuel said, Tzrichalam tim esrim ba'arba'a chodesh, chutz miyom shenolad bo, v'chutz miyom shenitz arsabo. Because they said regarding a nursing woman that she had to wait 24 months before she could get married, uh, before she could even do Yerusin excluding the day on which the baby was born and excluding the day on which uh, the erosine took uh, took place. Um, and then, you know, they they want to discuss that uh, a, a little bit more and they get into more of a discussion about the nursing, which I'm not going to read. Um, but I, I only wanted to highlight this section because I, I keep bringing this up. We have no stories or sort of practical examples of how the Amurayim or even the Tanayim implemented Yibam and Chalitza, and particularly Yibam. And here we have some very practical examples of how they enacted the three-month waiting period. So I think what we're seeing over and over again is Yibam by the time of the Talmud was not really done. I think they just automatically went to Chalitza. And again, we saw this because of that opinion that they didn't really trust sort of the brothers' motivations, right? That maybe they didn't have the purest of intentions that now they could actually sort of, uh, you know, because again, Yibum sort of does away with a, an erva, 
of of uh, Af, right, of your brother's wife, and they didn't totally trust the the opinion of that, and so I think they automatically went to Chalitza. Um, so that that's why why I wanted to highlight this section because when there's practical information to share, the Gemara is very willing to share it, and in fact, they want to share it because it shows you how people actually enacted it. Like when you say a three month waiting period. That can mean a lot of different things. What is three months? Is it exactly 90 days? How do you count it? And so they want to bring real life examples. We're not seeing those real life examples of Yibam. And so when we do see real life examples with other areas of halakha that are important to Yibam, I think the contrast is even more stark. I think it's a really important observation. Um, Okay. And then I want to mention one other quick thing. So the next section of the Gemara, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, it basically takes up the whole rest of the daf until the Mishnah on the bottom of the daf, and that Mishnah will read tomorrow, um, you know, talks about how Rabbi Yossi says that all women can basically do Averson within those three months, except for the wit for a widow, because she has to observe sort of her mourning period of her husband. Okay. I'm a Rav Chista, Kal Vachomer. So Rav Chista sort of questions this Mishnah with a Kal Vachomer. Right? Um, which is the following, that it should be basically, what Rav Chisa wants to argue is, is that maybe a woman should be allowed to do Eresin during her 30-day mourning period for her husband, right? We know that for spouses, it's just a 30-day mourning period. And the reason for that is, is that we have another period of mourning that's described in Halakha, and that's the period of mourning before Tisha B'Av. And it's prohibited in that period. You're not allowed to launder clothes. But it is permitted to do a receipt. So when you're allowed to launder, meaning during this 30-day mourning period, you, you're, you're allowed to launder. That, that's allowed, right? Right? Shouldn't you also be allowed to do a receipt? And so this is a great question that Rav Chista asks, right? That in other words, we want to make, compare, we want to compare mourning periods to each other. Um, but I think this really teaches us something about Tisha B'av, that Tisha B'av is not meant to be sort of this, you know, uh, sort of theoretical mourning, but the mourning that we do before Tisha B'av and on Tisha B'av is really supposed to sort of parallel or give us an experience of the mourning that an individual has uh, when they experience personal loss. Um, and the, the Gemara actually will bring that up later on. Like one of the things we'll talk about is maybe a difference between Rabbim and Yachid. But um, I, I just thought this was a great question of Rav Chista. Again, it's, it's, it's a very lengthy discussion. I'm not going to read any more of it. But, you know, using this parallel example between the mourning that a, a widow does to the mourning that one should experience be, uh, before Tisha B'av, um, I just think is a very great, uh, you know, it's really supposed to remind us how we're supposed to experience that period uh, before Tisha B'Av. And it, it's just, it's a great halachic discussion that ensues. And it's another practical, kind of practical implication of Masachit Yevamot, right? That it's, that we here have a parallel of mourning, you know, that highlights how our experience of mourning in Tisha B'Av is supposed to be. Right, exactly. So I, I, I just, I don't know. I like Rav Chisa's question is good. And they're really trying. And the other thing I'll say about this, it's a little bit similar and to what you read at the top of the doc. They really try to work out what exactly, uh, in other words, it's a meta discussion here as well. Like what is Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yossi's opinion here? 
And what exactly did he mean? What's the correct version of the Bryson? What's the correct version of the Mishnah? And they're going to bring a Bryson later also. So, um, you know, it's, it's a practical piece and also a theoretical piece. Like, how do you really understand the text that you're actually reading? That's our Dots discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.